HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit Corin.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hello, welcome to Japan Eats. I'm your host, Akiko Katayama, a food writer and the director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes a deeper understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. We are broadcasting live from our studio at Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn. This show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see sushi at every deli and supermarket, but what is beyond sushi? We hear dashi ramen izakaya, but what exactly are they? Japanese food is still a mystery for many people, and I try to demystify it in this program with my co-guests. And my guest today is Monica Samuels, who is a national sake sales manager at Vine Connections, which is a boutique importer of unique wine and sake. And Monica is no doubt one of the most accomplished sake professionals in the U.S. Also, she is uh, half Japanese, so she has a unique perspective on sake. As you may know, Japanese sake is increasingly popular in the U.S., and Monica is deeply knowledgeable of what's the latest in the market. Also, she is the super-skilled sake educator, making complicated subjects approachable and understandable. So today, we'll talk about how Monica developed her career in sake, what's happening in the market uh, right now, sake and food pairing tips, and much, much more. Uh, but before quickly uh, we start, uh, Japan is available on Heritage Radio Network website as well as iTunes and Stitcher as podcast. So please go to iTunes and or Stitcher and subscribe to Japan Eats. Also, if you have any ideas about topics of the show or show guests, please let us know. And you can email us at japaneats at heritageradionetwork.org. Now let's start our conversation with Monica Samelas. Hello, Monica. Welcome to Japan Eats. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. So, um, so we had quite a few sake professionals on this show, but you are the first half American, half Japanese sake expert. So I'm excited to learn how uh, you view the world of sake differently based on your dual cultural background. So first of all, um, where did you grow up? I grew up in Los Angeles County in the Long Beach area. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, how much Japanese influence did you have when you grew up? Well, my mother was born and raised in Tokyo, and she was a simultaneous interpreter for a lot of my growing up. And so it was very important for her to give me a bilingual upbringing. So I went to a Japanese immersion school on Saturdays growing up. And during the summers, I, I spent every summer in Tokyo. A lot of、um, my elementary school, I went to summer school in Tokyo as well. And growing up in Southern California, I had a lot of friends who had a similar up- upbringing. So、mm. it, was, it was a pretty strong part of my childhood. Wow. Okay. So pretty much you're exposed to Japanese life in Japan as well. Yes. Okay. I don't think you started drinking sake that early, but. <laughs> no, no, definitely not. <laughs> right. And、uh, so you grew up in LA, but eventually you moved to New York City. So when and why did you move? Well, I moved to New York City. At the end of 2003, beginning of 2004. And、uh, my parents had retired actually in northern Thailand. There's a very large Japan expat community there, and my mother had a lot of friends there. So I didn't have a lot of family、um, in Southern California. And my older sister had moved to New York, and she always said, Everyone wishes they lived in New York at some point during their lives. And if you don't do it now, you will have reasons that you can't, you know, with work or relationships and things. And so It was a very fast decision, and、uh, I moved to New York in about a month's time.、Mm. And you look very happy now. Oh, yeah, I can't imagine <laughs> my life differently. <laughs> okay. And、uh, so, how did you get into the world of sake? Well, right after I moved to New York, I started working for the Sushi Samba Group. And、um, that was, yeah, right at the beginning of 2004. And they are a restaurant group that is now international.、They're, they have Many locations in London and I believe Dubai, and they're very inspired by the flavors of Japan, Brazil, and Peru. And、um, growing up in California with a lot of Asian influence in food, but very much influenced by California cuisine and California ingredients, I, I had kind of seen a lot of fusing of different flavors, and I thought it was really interesting what they were doing. And they had、um, one, of the, one of the bigger sake lists、uh, nationally at the time, they had about 40 or 50 sakes on the menu, which was quite unusual over、mm. almost 15 years ago.、Right. And so I,、um, I worked for the company for four years and I became moved up into management, and working with sake kind of became my thing. And so I took a few classes and I was teaching a lot of sake and sushi kind of classes at Sushi Samba and traveling a lot as they had locations in Chicago and Miami and Texas at the time. And then I was contacted by、uh, Southern Wine and Spirits、um, in the New York location, and they had kind of just opened in New York. And there probably there are so many mergers now, but at that time, they were the largest alcohol distributor in the US. And they had really wanted to take, get more serious about sake. So、um, I moved, in, moved back to New York. I was living in Chicago at the time, and I took over. Their sake portfolio, and it was a really interesting opportunity to, to learn about distribution and bring in new importers and new brands. Right. Okay. So,、um, well, there's a lot of things happening.、Um, so, but you know, you started working with Samba, but did you have any intention to be specialized in sake at that time? Not really. I really loved restaurants my whole life, and I w- went to school for marketing, and I was working, working kind of part time.、Um, After college in marketing firms, but still bartending or managing restaurants at night. And I, I was so into hospitality and food and beverage. And,、um, you know, my, my grandfather actually worked for a short amount of time at a sake brewery in Ibaraki. And、oh, so、um, it was something that my family had a lot of respect for. And I, I liked sake. And, and I always 
felt like there was a big disconnect with understanding sake because people thought of it as this one really kind of cheap thing. Mm, right. Well, I'm curious about your grandfather. So he, he was uh, working in the, the brewery. Yes, and this was when he was a lot younger. Right. He, was, uh, he, he wanted to go get experience as a kurabito in a brewery in Ibaraki. And so it was a, it was a shorter amount of time, but he really liked to, to, to drink sake. And so it was, mm-hmm. it was something that he would refer to. Right. Okay. And to yourself, uh, what is special about sake? Like, you, know, you could have been in wine or other things, right? Yeah, I do really like wine. I think that with sake, it's, it's much less terroir-driven. You know, it, it's very precise. It's all about... Um, craft and technique and I really admire that and I think that there's so many things about sake that really make sense to me in thinking about Japanese culture but the one big difference to me is that Japan is such a modern country and they're so advanced in terms of technology and sake is so the opposite you know it's so handmade and they don't really rely on machines and Mm -hmm. it's so much more about intuition and so it's been this really interesting paradox for me right like Many other things. Right. Certain things you never change. Exactly. Right. Because I think they know that the machine cannot never ever cannot replace certain aspects of it. Exactly. Right. So I feel like there's so much of a person inside of a bottle of sake, which mm-hmm. is so it's it, it's so much so personal for everyone who makes small artisan sake. Mm. Right. That's we always associate sake making as a craftsmanship. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. And uh, so you said you were you studied sake, but by you know the system, but you learn, you taste it, and learning how it's made, or how, what's the process of learning? Here? Well, there's a, a lot of. Uh, fortunately, there are several different options available in English now. Um, I started working. I started taking classes through John Gottner, and so I, mm-hmm. through the Sake Education Council, I completed the Certified Sake Professional Course, the Advanced Sake Professional Course, and I was fortunate enough while working with different sake producers um, as a distributor to get invited to go to Japan and not just tour sake breweries, but to actually work in different sake breweries and stay overnight and really learn about that process firsthand. Um, and after doing that, um, I had been studying sake more by talking to brewers. And uh, then when the Wine and Spirits Education Trust developed their Level 3 award in sake, I became an instructor for that which has been a really great experience in um, not only just refreshing, keeping things fresh, but also the industry is changing so much. You know, it's still quite young as far as premium sake. And so as new new techniques have been developed and there have been new practices that are more common, keeping up to date with that. Mm, okay. So, uh, but first of all, that John Gondner, who was uh, on my on this show, um, what are you going? It, it sounds like that's the most relevant sake course for sake professionals so far. Yeah, it's really, I think the the big difference between what John Gottner does and what's so special is that he teaches every class. And if you look at the Sake Service Institute or the WSET, um, it's very developed so that anyone, anyone who takes it very seriously and has the knowledge can teach it. And John's class is very anecdotal and it, there's so much personal experience and personal observations about the industry that you really can't get that that education from anyone else. And mm. so I think it's really, really special. Right. Interesting. Well, when he came to our show, he said, uh, this is my love. And then the life opens up. You just keep doing what you love. So that was very impressive. And that's exactly what it's doing for the students. Oh, absolutely. Right. Okay. And uh, so um, what is the hardest thing in studying sake? 
The hardest thing is all the gray areas. You know, I think with studying wine, you can learn, you can study a grape varietal or you can study a region or, and, and really be able to make a lot of generalizations about that wine before you, even if you've never had it, you know, you can say, okay, I know this varietal, I know this region, I know this vintage, so I can, I can assume X, Y, Z. With sake, you can't do that. And, um, and it's also very, depending on what producer you talk to, they'll tell you that things are absolutely the best way to do things or the worst way. And you'll hear so many conflicting things. <laughs> so it's, it's hard to learn that way, but mm. it's also interesting because it's so subjective. But I think that sometimes translating that to wine professionals can be challenging. Mm, interesting. And I think that results really reflect in the sake, right? Like Junmai, it's the same rice. It's not like many different kinds of grapes. And then same right. rice results in completely different flavors exactly and so it's it's so much more about technique and in that way it's kind of more similar to beer you know you can have ipas that are all over the board in flavor and so you can't say that a pilsner will necessarily always taste this way and it, it's really a lot more about what is happening inside the brewery mm. right but one thing uh what's in common between beer and uh, uh sake it's a big grain based but um maybe because it's technically you know just the specific fermentation, right? It's different from beer. So how, how, can you just explain? Yeah, so uh, sake is brewed. And the big difference between sake and beer is the multiple parallel fermentation. Um, so with beer, you have a grain. It is grain-based, but it's a malted grain. So the starch enzymes can convert to sugar without any without any added ingredients. And with sake, you have to grow the kojikin, the mold, on the steamed sake rice. And it's not... It's only grown on some of the rice. So all the way throughout the end of fermentation, you have starch converting into sugar while yeast is eating sugar and producing alcohol. So it's, it's much more complex, and it's a slower, colder fermentation. Mm. I think there is a data. I think that um, the flavor components in beer is 200, and the wine is 400, and the sake is like 600. Oh, really? Because of the complexity. Yeah, I can see that. Right. So, um, okay, and... Uh, so the you know your career path as sake specialist has developed and thrived over twelve years, and going from restaurants to distributor to importer now. So, um, can you share your experience and what you learn at each stage? Because I think some of my listeners might be interested in pursuing a similar career. Well, I think you know focusing on sake in a restaurant and being a sake sommelier, you're really thinking a lot about how to get people get the end user to want to drink sake, right? And there's there's several ways you can do that. You know, you can... I think that it's always really important to consider what this person normally likes to drink. And no one starting out in a beverage likes to be told, this is for people who are who are not... who don't know much about this beverage. You know, you'd rather be told, oh, you are a Sauvignon Blanc drinker. Like, please try this sake. It's really fruity and crisp and refreshing. Or you are a whiskey drinker. Try this sake that has much more umami and smoky. And um, and then also really thinking about food pairing. You know, I think that the classic wine food pairings are often very protein-based. And, um, and now that we're in this really interesting food culture where people are focusing a lot more on vegetables and using a lot more preparations of fermentation and, um, you know, fish sauce and these pungent, more vinegary flavors that are, can really challenge a lot of these classic wine pairings. Sake can save you in so many ways. So thinking about pairing and how to get, how to open people's eyes through pairing a challenging dish with a sake instead of a wine, and then how to customize your recommendations based on what they already drink is really important at the restaurant level. 
at a distributor level, I think it's really important to consider um, the producer, right? And and you want them. There's so many changing of hands from a sake being made in a brewery to ending up at the end user. And there's so much responsibility as a distributor in terms of rotating inventory properly, ordering properly, um, pricing things that are appropriate for the market, making sure that salespeople are using the right language to communicate the sake and that, um, that must be really hard. It is. <laughs> and it's, it's a lot of responsibility. Mm-hmm. And then, and then you probably have a lot of sake to sell as a distributor. So, so figuring out how to balance your portfolio and make sure that uh, ingredients don't com- uh, that items don't compete with each other, which is, is, is overlaps into the responsibility as an importer. I mean, I think as an importer, you are able to influence what, what you're bringing in more than just choosing from what's already available in the U.S. Mm. So as an importer, you can look at the industry and you look, you can think about what consumers might be ready for and how to introduce it. And, um, and it, the possibilities I think are endless as an importer, because you can go to Japan and talk to people and, and have a crazy idea of, of a sake that you think is going to be, you know, going to be great for people who like natural wines or you can look at these trends in the u.s mm. and and try to align different sakes and so it's it's um it's a little different but it's similar to the responsibilities interesting I think, I'm, I'm really curious about that you know natural wine trend tend to um be connected with what kind of sake that you're talking about i think that more of these uh kind of aged very high like high levels of koji mm. uh much more savory much more uh much more concentrated amino acids mm. I think have uh, can can entertain a similar audience. Right, interesting. Right, kind of like in other words, it could be funky or more gamey kind. Yeah, of. absolutely. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, you you mentioned your interesting work of importer. So, what is your responsibility at Vine Connections? Well, um, so at Vine Connections, I am first and foremost the national sales manager. So we're in all fifty states. And several provinces of Canada. So, managing our distributors, making sure that they they carry the right product mix from us. I mean, it doesn't really make sense for all of our sake to be available in Nebraska, for example. And so, <laughs> working with them on analyzing the market, um, figuring out what makes sense to carry from us, managing their their ordering. You know, it's it, we we take responsibility if our if our distributors are ordering too much and products getting old. So, kind of looking at really. Looking at the rate that products are moving and making suggestions, training their sales force so that they can speak intelligently and effectively about sake, and then going in the market and working with them. And then, because sake is more perishable than oh, yeah. wine, right? Yeah. So, and it really depends on the sake. I mean, we we work really hard with our producers to to take advantage of different innovations as far as different types of UV protectant um, packaging, different you know, different tinted bottles, different ways of pasteurization to keep the sake much more stable. But at the end of the day, it's much more perishable than wine. So mm. it needs to be, that needs to be understood by everyone who's handling it. Right. On average, how, how many months would you say it should be consumed? Well, you know, with more of these high acid savory styles of sake, they're generally very sturdy. Mm. And, um, and as they get older, the, sometimes that savory note is enhanced. You know, if you look at a sake that has a lot of mushroom and nutty notes, the older it gets, the more kind of nutty it's Mm. going to get. And so that is not necessarily a bad thing, but sakes that are very low acid, low umami, and very vibrant, um, those aromas tend to deteriorate over time. And so I would say I've had some sakes which 
and this is assuming everything is pasteurized at least once, uh, I've had some sakes that really change after a year. Mm. And I've had some sakes that are get more interesting up to three years. Mm. So I would say that, you know, for, for very vibrant, aromatic daiginjo types, a year would be ideal, uh, probably up to a year and a half, but more Jumai, Kimoto, Yamahai, these high savory types, three years is, is mm. fine. Okay, it's good to know. Because I, I, I happen to have one Kimoto. It's been sitting in my fridge. And it was a gift from someone. So I was like, hmm, what can I open? It's still good. So. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure it's still uh, good. Okay. And uh, so so despite the fact that uh, the number of sake brewers are decreasing in Japan and sake consumption is growing solidly here in the U.S., so uh, in what city is sake consumption growing right now? Well, it's growing everywhere for us. Um, we're very, very lucky that... Um, I think that we've been aligned with some very good fine wine distributors that are excited about sake. I think that it's getting a little saturated on the coasts. You know, I think that for the, for a long time now, brewers and uh, you know Japanese export organizations have been focusing on Los Angeles, San Francisco, New York, and um, I think when you look at other sophisticated affluent cities that aren't necessarily as concentrated with Japanese people, like. Miami, um, Austin, Texas, Denver, Colorado, uh, Chicago, Boston, the growth is much, you're seeing much more of a boom with sake right now. Mm. And also in the craft beer, very craft beer dedicated places. I mean, once again, Colorado, but also North Carolina, uh, we've been really surprised by seeing the interest. I think that it's now that there are beer geeks willing to spend $30 on a bottle of beer, a 750 milliliter bottle of beer, you can show that person a bottle of sake that has the same kind of interesting um, balance of bitterness with umami and, you know, the thirst quenching quality that can really resonate with them. Mm, and also the artisanal yes, nature. Yes, absolutely. Interesting. Wow, I didn't expect that. <laughs> yeah, it's been really fun. Mm. And it's taught me a lot about beer. Okay. <laughs> And uh, so what types of sake are most popular right now? You know, I think that it it's still, it's it has been and it still is. Uh, Ginjo styles are very easy to sell uh, in terms of being a little more wine-like in, in style and having these vibrant, more tropical, concentrated fruit aromas. But I think that as Japanese cuisine has changed in the U.S. and as more ramen shops and more izakaya, rabada places have opened in, in not necessarily very Japanese communities, people are more interested in having more rustic sakes. With, mm. and, and I think that, you know, red wine drinkers, it's easier to introduce high acid, kimoto, yamahai, savory sakes, where white wine drinkers, it's often easier to introduce these more fruity, fresh sakes. Mm. But um, one interesting difference that I've seen is that there's been a lot more, I think, mineral-driven sakes that are popular in the U.S. now. And, and I think uh, for a long time, it was the very soft water, very delicate, very very soft, creamy sakes that people fell in love with. But now people are looking at more more minerality in the water, more more structure, more tension and energy mm. in the sake. Mm. Why do you think... I think that those styles are becoming more popular in Japan, too. You know, I think that for the longest time, people thought that soft water is best for sake. Mm. And now there are regions that are have more maritime influence or more, you know, 
limestone and the mountains where the snow is melting and coming down that it's creating more minerality in the water and people I think there's more interest in wine in Japan as well and so mm. I, I hear a lot more producers talking about wine when they talk about their sakes and so it's been an interesting overlap mm. right and I think uh, in wine world minerality the term is becoming more popular too so maybe that's another corresponding fact. yeah absolutely right okay and uh, do people drink sake mainly at restaurants or as, at home as well well I think that the the prevalence of sake in fine wine stores is what has been the most um, most encouraging as far as the growth of sake. You know, no matter where you go in the U.S., if you go to a store that is legitimately a fine wine store, they will have sake. Mm. And so that must mean people are drinking a lot of sake at home, right? right? And and I think that people have been much more creative with how to introduce customers to sake. If you walked into a wine shop. Five years ago, I think you would see sake you know, on the bottom shelf, kind of near the kosher wine or the schnapps. <laughs> and it's very, you know, it kind of gives you this impression that sake is cheap or sweet or kind of a very, very uh, ethnically uh, narrow category. Mm-hmm. And now I see people, depending on the place, you know, merchandising sake near high-end craft beer, near the rosés for summertime, near more esoteric white wines. Mm. And so I think that it's really changed the customer perception. Right. Yeah, I started to notice that. Yeah, it's, uh, thank thank goodness, finally. Mm. Right, and the packaging also, it's appealing. Yes. Nowadays. Right. And I think I heard uh, the uh, sake consumption here is more uh, geared towards higher-end sake. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I don't think, I, I think that the market of people who are buying the least expensive sake in the magnum size, there's not, it's not an, there's no one's getting drawn to that category at all of a sudden. You know, Mm. those people are going to keep drinking that and that's great. Uh, But I think that it's much more attractive to drink premium sake. Mm, Right. Like premium everything. Right. Like beer too, like (laughs) you said. Right. But uh, actually who are drinking sake in US now? What kind of uh, demographics? You know, that always surprises me, too. You hear so many statistics about millennials and about young professionals being people who drink sake. And and I think that when I do events, one thing that surprises me constantly is the um, the number of women who come to events. And, and I think that I think that a lot of women who I talk to who might not be millennials, who might be in their 40s and 50s, um, say that they used to be intimidated by sake and used to think of it as more of a masculine thing to drink. Mm-hmm. And um, and now enjoying it in a wine glass and kind of and sipping it and the packaging has become a lot more attractive has, I think, brought on a larger female clientele. And I think that it's not necessarily restricted to millennials. Mm, right. So... And uh, of course, you know, people who tend to go to higher end Japanese restaurants who have money and maybe older people. Exactly. And, um, you know, and, and sake, the place that sake shows up the most outside of Japanese restaurants in the restaurant scene is often these tasting menus, these really, these really iconic chefs. And so the people who are going to those restaurants and spending $200 on a tasting menu are generally more established people. Right. <laughs> that makes sense. Okay. And, uh, but, you know, as a national sake sales manager, you trouble nationwide to promote sake. So what is the biggest challenge in educating potential sake drinkers in this country? 
The biggest challenge is getting people to accept that sake is its own category. And people are always trying to call it to, to push it into this rice wine category, or people are trying to say it is beer, or or people treat it like a spirit. And you know, we've all seen people doing shots of sake. And so it's it's challenging mm. to get people to accept that they have to create another another place in their brain for sake. And they they have wine over here, they have beer over here, they have spirits. Sake is, is different. And so I think that there's so many ways to educate people about that, but um, but it's really, I, I think that is the biggest um, hurdle. Mm, right. So what do you do with that? <laughs> well, you show people where, um, you know, I think sake versus wine and sake versus beer is very effective. If you show people a dish that might have some very um, strong conflicts with, with wine. Like, I mean, one of my favorites, and this is an extreme case, is uh, Kazunoko, mm -hmm. uh, like the herring roe. You can't pair that with wine. Mm. You, you know, it's there's it's very unpleasant, I think. There's a very kind of metallic or, like, bitter right. flavor that comes out. And you can pair it with sake. And not only does it not make the herring roe taste terrible, but it actually tastes better, you know, mm. with the sake. And so something like kimchi and sake versus wine. You know, something that really surprises people, I think, is, is a great way to get people to take sake seriously as a different category. Interesting. Right, because it's uh, more rounded or... Well, there's no tartaric acid in sake, um, so which is great for physically because you know you don't have acid reflux or heartburn after drinking a lot of sake, but it doesn't... You know, I think it's that tartaric acid that can create these... Um, like really intense astringent or metallic qualities with with certain like fish sauce and pickles and things like that and then um and also there's these dextrins in sake so you know the koji mold that's grown on sake to convert starch into sugar it doesn't fully convert the starch into sugar so there's remaining starch these dextrins and so when you think about the creaminess of sake or that mm. oiliness it, it can kind of moderate strong flavors in food that mouth coating quality interesting wow so it's a built-in yeah. kind of a mechanism to soften everything. Definitely. Right. Interesting. Okay. Um, so let's take a quick break here. And when we come back, Monica will share tips for food and sake pairings. So please stay with us. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. Corin is proud of their Japanese culture and traditions, but they want you to know that their products are not just for Japanese restaurants. Their knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant, from French to Pan-Asian to American. And that is why they're located in New York City, where people from every country in the world come to eat. Corin's unique store in Lower Manhattan is home to perhaps the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan, plus the rarest natural sharpening stones and exquisitely designed tableware. They also host special events such as knife sharpening demonstrations and parties with New York's most famous chefs and restaurateurs. Corin is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the implicit and elegance of Japanese culture to your table, be it in your home or in the finest restaurant. For more information, visit Corin.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Japanese broadcasting live from a studio in Bushwick, Brooklyn. I'm your host, Akiko Katayama, and my guest today is Monica Samuels, who is the National Sake Manager at Vine Connections, which is a boutique importer of unique wine and sake. 
So um, it seems that there are knowledgeable sake drinkers in U.S. nowadays. And how do you describe their knowledge level? Because our listeners sometimes say get a feedback and they know so much. Well, I think that people want to make it easy for themselves. And and so I I think it's challenging because I'll talk to people who say, oh, I I love Daiginjo, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and that's great. But sometimes it's limiting, like they don't want to taste any junmai or Mm. any ginjo. And so the challenge with, and I I think that people, you know, most wine drinkers can say, okay, I like Sauvignon Blanc or I like Chardonnay. And that's that's very helpful for a sommelier to be able to guide them in a different direction. But um, I think that people who drink sake generally will think, will say that they like daiginjo or they like junmai rather than they like this producer or that producer. Mm. And... um, and I think that they retain vocabulary very well in that way. But it, instead, I wish they would think a little more about why they like something and then how that can introduce them into another another category or another type of sake. Mm, interesting. So um, you want to break their kind of uh, pre-concepts? Well, I wish someone would say, I love umami. Or I love sake that is very fruity and uh, very creamy in texture. Or something where, where there's so many more options. Or I love sake that has a lot of salinity. Mm. You know, instead of... Because that's not necessarily junmai or daiginjo. Right. It, right. Well, for instance, if I go to a restaurant and I try new wine, grape, um, I need a story. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, why do I have to drink this? Because I know I like this grape and why I have to do the new thing so maybe that's kind of thing like you try to induce to your customers yeah I think it's just challenging because Junmai Ginjo Daiginjo is the only thing that's legally required to be on a label right mm. but it's not necessarily the most defining characteristic of how a sake will taste. Right. And most producers don't say, I made this sake because I wanted to make a great Junmai Ginjo. Mm. They'll say, you know, I made this sake because we are near the ocean and we want to celebrate those flavors of the ocean. We wanted to make a sake that's great with right. uni and oysters. And that's why we created a sake with this salinity. Right. And, but that doesn't, there's, it doesn't say that on right. the bottle. I mean, this, the, the Ginjo, the Ginjo, it's just a milling rate of rice. So it right. doesn't mean anything in exactly. terms of personal flavors. Exactly. Right. So listeners, open your mind <laughs> go beyond ginjo da ginjo. yeah use flavor descriptors mm, interesting okay and uh, so you also develop sake programs in uh, for j- non-japanese restaurants as well so is the category growing yeah yeah i think so and i think that there are a couple reasons i mean we've really identified certain food categories like oysters and cheese that are amazing with sake right and um and that need something like sake to really showcase the spectrum of textures and umami and flavor and more and more restaurants have these raw bar and cheese programs and so that's been a really great way to introduce sake and and the more that we can kind of do it in a way where the chef is also there and we can taste with the chef and they will almost always really support having a sake program when they see how it's complementing the food. Mm. And so that I think is the easiest way. Um, And then places that have an international wine program, I think they, the idea that, Oh, I'm only having sake when I have Japanese food is slowly changing. And Mm. so, so we're getting more and more exposure into, into non-Japanese restaurants. Mm. Right. And I think uh, also restaurants are 
pretty competitive, so they have to offer something unique. Oh, yeah, definitely. So the sommelier is a kind of test to introduce something new, maybe. Right. And uh, so you are known as a great sake educator and uh, even lectured on sake for Culinary Institute of America uh, academic program. So now I'd like to ask you about sake pairing tips. And what should we know about sake and food pairings and any simple rules that we can keep in mind at the restaurant or liquor store? Well, I think that one good one is that sake is very good at, at decreasing the perception of saltiness. And so if you're having, um, you know, olives... Uh, very briny, you know, Mediterranean spreads. If you're having strong pickles, sake can be a really nice foil in, in diminishing that saltiness. And um, it was a, a way that it was explained to me that I, I really like is, is, you know, in Japanese food, you're so often eating all these little dishes with a bowl of rice, right? Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of these dishes are so pungent and so f- salted or fishy on their own that they're too overwhelming, but you eat it with the rice and it, com- it t- harmonizes it. Right. And so the sake is like the rice. And mm. so when you have these like salted, you know, fish roe and pickles, you have it with sake and it, it brings out the the umami while toning down the pungent aroma mm, or flavor. Right. And not just the neutralizing, it's uh, enhancing the flavor. Yes, absolutely. Each, like rice. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. And uh, so I'm sure that you've been to many sake breweries. So um, what experience at sake breweries um, was most memorable? <clears throat> what experience is the most memorable? Um, you know, I think the, the, the most memorable that I see from is a pattern in many breweries is this uh, so many generations of the same family being involved in the sake business. And you have someone's the president's grandmother coming out to do the tea ceremony for you. And you have the president's wife, you know, preparing some some snacks for you to taste while you're tasting the sake. And the president's mother, you know, is coming to pick you up from the airport and, um, you know, and is, is making a uh, making a little gift bag for you on the way out. And the president's son, who might be six years old, is walking around in the brewery wearing rubber boots and, and you know, a, a hat. <laughs> and so it's just... It's amazing to see this family business that I don't think we see in America. And so I think it's really the most, it makes people feel so connected to the sake when they, they can see that kind of generation to generation. Mm, right. It's only how many brewers now in Japan that exist? You know, it depends on who you ask. I would say around a thousand. Mm, right, it's decreasing. Well, I heard this year it increased by twenty breweries or something. Oh wow! And it was the first year in like twenty years that hmm. there's actually been a small increase. So that's that's very positive news. Right. Is it a new ones by younger generation? Yes. Wow. It's new ones by younger generations, and also you know people purchase breweries as they're going out of business, and then bring them back to life. And awesome. so I think that there's a lot of that happening as well. Right. It's like a craft beer resurgence. Absolutely. Oh, that's great. Have you tasted those new breweries, Sake? Yeah. You know, I think that there's a lot more experience. There's definitely a changing of the guard with Sake with younger, you know, younger generations taking over and experimenting more with modern yeast strains, flour yeast, um, different types of pressing. And so that sometimes... You know, as a as a style gets its legs, you know, it's a little shaky sometimes, and mm-hmm. you have it's not always great, but uh, but it's always really interesting. Mm. Right, of course, they're like 19th generation sake producers versus new ones. Of course, but it's gonna maybe they will continue. Yeah, I like the I like seeing both classic and modern. I think it's really great. Mm. But speaking of, um, I started to see new and superior uh, artisanal sake producers in the U.S. as well. 
So what's your opinion about those sake? Oh, I think that we're so lucky right now to have, I mean, I think that if you go, when you go to a sake bar in Tokyo and you want, and you say, bring me something that I can't get in the U.S., they might have to pull out six or seven bottles before they can find something that you can't get in the U.S. <laughs> and so it's, it's, we're so fortunate to have these really iconic kind of, uh, Legacy sake is available now.、Mm, okay, right. And、uh, so, how do you predict the future of the sake market in the US? Because now, you know, there's a new element.、Uh, of course, a good、uh, importers like yours importing traditional sake and、uh, new brewers are born in Japan and here. So, how do you see the future of sake? Well, my hope is that there will be some more. Collaboration.、Um, if you look at the wine world, you know, you see wines of Chile and vibrant Rioja and wines of the Loire Valley and these, these great kind of coordinated efforts between, between importers to promote a region or promote a style. And I think we should and hopefully will do that more in the US because I think there's so many of us right now and we're all putting in a lot of energy. And if we work together,、mm. I think we'll, we'll actually, in a significant way, grow the understanding and the demographic of sake. So I, I hope that coordinated marketing is, is the future.、Mm, maybe a big exhibition. Yeah. I mean, like a sake event, like sake conference. Yeah, I think,、like、yeah, or something that happens in, on a smaller scale in every major city. You、mm. know, like, you know, a sake promotion that everyone can execute in some level、right. locally. Right, like a smorgasbord sake version. Exactly. That would be fun. I would, it would be my dream.、Mm. Okay, so when are you, you going to start? <laughs> I, I'm working on it. I'm、okay. working on it. Yeah, <laughs> and then when you do, please come back. Absolutely. <laughs> right.、Um, okay, and.、Uh, You know, the, you've been pursuing a career in sake very successfully. So, what keeps you going? Well, it's, I mean, I, right now, it's being the relationships with our producers. You know, they work so much harder than I do, and they have, they take things so seriously. And it really is this, the responsibility that we have as an importer. Is like they are giving us their kids to go to college to take care of them. And they never get to see their kids. They have no idea what they're doing. And they have to trust that we're taking care of them and、mm-hmm. that they're going to be appreciated and given great opportunities. And so it, we really treat sake as a living thing. And that's what keeps me going.、Mm, right. And do you go back to Japan often to visit those people? Yeah, I do. I was just there、um, at the end of February and I was able to visit five of our breweries. And,、um, and we met with all of our brewers in Tokyo for. A day, and I, I was in Japan three times last year, and hopefully, I'll go back once more this year. But that's that's also the best best part of the job.、Mm, so. But it must be fun, especially because you speak Japanese, you have Japanese, it's kind of more accepted in a way to visit breweries. Yeah, it is fun. I mean, it's still. Being half Japanese, sometimes you feel like you might as well not be Japanese at all because <laughs> you feel so different. But,、uh, but yeah, it's, it's great to be able to communicate. That's, I'm so grateful. And I, I was fought with my mom so much as a child about studying Japanese, and I thank her every day now. So,、oh. <laughs> <laughs> right. And、uh, so, the, I think the majority of the breweries are still、uh, family owned. Oh, yes,、right? absolutely.、Mm. Um, so, if our, our listeners want to visit them, is it possible to visit them? It is.、Um, I'm always happy to talk to anyone who wants to go to a sake brewery. I, I mean,、uh, Japanese proficiency makes things a lot easier.、Uh, we do have one brewery that does conduct tours in English.、Um, but 
for the most part, it's it's not like going to Napa Valley and dropping into the tasting room. So, <laughs> so it does need to be set up on I, appointment. Mm, okay. So uh, where can we find your activities and projects and uh, maybe contact information if somebody wants to visit uh, the sake brewery? Uh, yeah. Well, my uh, email address is Monica, M-O-N-I-C-A, at vineconnections.com, which is definitely the best way to reach me. Okay, great. No way. So thank you for joining us today, Monica. Thank you so much. So listeners, if you have any questions or comments about the show uh, or suggestions for guests or topics of the show, please contact us at japaneeds at heritageradionetwork.org. And Japaneeds is live at 3 p.m. on Mondays and always available at heritageradionetwork.org, iTunes and Stitcher podcast. And please go to iTunes and Stitcher and write a review. We'd appreciate your feedback. And today's show was made possible by Corinne and our engineer is Vitro uh, Hash. And thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.